This NBA season, make every three-pointer, alley-oop, and buzzer beater even more exciting with FanDuel. You can bet on everything from first baskets and number of dunks to which player will drain the most threes. Or stack your bets with the same-game parlay for a shot to win even bigger. It's quick, easy, and you'll get your winnings fast. So download the app today and see why we're North America's number one sportsbook. Make every moment more with FanDuel. 19 plus and physically located in Ontario. Gambling problem? Call 1-866-531-2600 or visit connectsontario.ca. Hello and welcome to the Raptors Weekly Extra Podcast. I'm Mo Sampson Folk, and today a very special guest. I say this for most guests, but a very special guest, one of my favorites to have on, following another favorite, Michael Pina, who talked about the Eastern Conference. Now we have one of my favorites, Joe Wolfon, a fantastic writer, doing NBA features over at The Score, and also a co-host of the Pound the Rock podcast, Padcast. And uh, yeah, we're going to talk about the Western Conference. Joe, how are you doing, man? I'm doing all right. You know, all things considered, got to add the qualifiers every time, but all things considered, I'm doing, uh, I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing quite well. When you think about it, when you say all things considered, that obviously is a catch all. What percentage of things considered in your life do you think you're typically working with? I mean, you can never really consider all things at the same time, but then when somebody asks you how you're doing, like you really just have to take into account everything that like I think when that question gets asked you're just hoping for a stock answer anyway so you can move the conversation along but I think you know in the midst of a global pandemic and you know everything that's kind of gone along with that and the number of people that are really suffering and struggling like it's it just feels inappropriate almost to say that you're doing well Um, so that's when you have to consider all things, but I guess the majority of the time you're considering maybe like 10 to 20% of things. If that, That, yeah, that makes sense. The stock answers are not for me, baby. That's for the birds. And I think there was a a very interesting indie film I saw when I was younger. It's, uh, Indiana Jones and the kingdom of the crystal skull. And, uh, there was a woman at the end who knew all things and it actually broke her brain. So I'm, I'm glad you're not considering everything at once. I feel like that would be devastating for you. Yeah, I, I wouldn't want that. Um, so operating within the kind of narrow framework that my brain permits me to, uh, I'm doing pretty well. Thanks for asking. I would say a vast framework. And that's the last compliment before we jump into it. Joe? Okay, so Paul George, he signed an extension today. And this is basically uh, Sam and Joe versus the conventional wisdom of Twitter. I assume you'll be on my side. There is this idea that Paul George is not worth a max contract. Do you have any immediate opinion on that statement? I mean, it's like Paul George, like any player in the league, is worth what you know the market determines his worth to be. He's worth whatever any team would be willing to pay him. And the thought that if the Clippers had allowed him to get to free agency, another team wouldn't have maxed him out, I think is completely wrong. So this is what it would have taken, whether they you know, had done it now as an extension or allowed him to get to free agency and this decided that they wanted to re-sign him. I think it was going to take a max no matter what. So 
the the thing about max contracts is like the the best players in the league wind up getting paid the same amount as like second tier stars and Paul George who I think is a fantastic player is basically a second tier star uh, you know I guess despite that one MVP caliber season that he had with OKC which is looking maybe like a little bit of an outlier and so relative to the best players in the league, you're going to say like the second tier stars are overpaid. But in reality, it's just like that the best players in the league are being underpaid. And that's what the max salaries do, right? Like they suppress the value of the very best players in the league. But like generally speaking, um, if you look around the league, like, yeah, Paul George is definitely worth a max contract. There are a lot of worse players than Paul George who are making the max right now. Yeah, that's basically my point is that if Tobias Harris gets the max, gets this big contract, and you say, okay, given the market, that seems like an overpay, Paul George getting the max, even if, let's say, LeBron James, Kawhi Leonard, both in what they bring as far as advertising, merchandise, and on court, is worth much more than the max. I also think, given the market, Paul George is also worth more than the max, so you should probably be happy to have him at the max contract. I feel like there's... Not a significant chance that this contract ends up being something along the lines of Westbrook, Wall, or Chris Paul, right? Where suddenly, two years in, everybody thinks it's an albatross, it's impossible to move, and then they completely underrate the on-court talents. I don't think that'll happen with Paul George. So I think that is a good indicator of that this was a good max contract to hand out. And as you say, if he's going to get a max contract elsewhere, why not keep, you know, in the logic is keeping all the assets that you paid for or traded for. And so that is the, that's, that's Paul George basically. Or yeah, go ahead. You sound like uh, there was a gasp before it. <laughs> well, I was just going to say, I think, you know, the, the kind of one argument that I would be willing to hear a game spit is just his age, right? Like he's going to turn 31 this season and will be, what will he be like 35, maybe 36 by the end of the contract, making close to $49 million. Like the back end of that deal has a high likelihood of looking pretty rough. But, you know, the other thing, I guess, and, and I'm usually not, you know, a proponent of buying into the sunk cost fallacy, but like they gave up so much to get him that I think to allow him to get to free agency and potentially lose him for nothing would have been malpractice. That many picks plus Shea would be, yeah, malpractice sounds like the right word. Okay, another example of possible malpractice is how the Rockets decide to go forward with this James Harden. The trades that get a lot of heat on Twitter, and that is not a, a pun, the Nets trade that the package is obviously not good enough for James Harden. The heat package that is rumored to be centered around Tyler Hero is obviously should not be good enough for Harden. Are we looking at what might end up being the lowest amount paid as far as assets, as far as playing the game of players have a a value in this market? Are we looking at the lowest amount paid for a star of Harden's caliber ever, perhaps? I don't think that that's how it'll end up playing out. I think... I don't think he's going to get traded before the season starts. And I guess maybe it'll depend on the extent to which he manages to suppress his own trade value by pouting and just generally not playing very well. Like we've seen that before. 
I mean, you can even take it back to like the Anthony Davis scenario where the Pelicans kind of had lost their leverage because AD was out there telling anybody who would listen that he wouldn't resign with any team other than the Lakers, which kind of narrowed down their trade avenues to just one team because no other team was going to give up meaningful assets to get him for what they knew was only going to be one year. And yet they still managed to extract a pretty significant haul from L.A., in that deal, uh, you know, even after he sat out the entirety or not the, the, the entire second half, basically, of uh, of his last season in New Orleans. So I think ultimately it'll get to a point where a team will see an opportunity and it's kind of a double pronged thing, right? You go after Harden because you want to get him and you go after him because you don't want another team to get him. And I think, what, you know, maybe this market seems cool right now or just you know, based on what the Rockets are hoping or expecting to get for him, uh, it's not meeting their asking price. I think ultimately there will probably be something of a compromise where they'll maybe meet teams in the middle. I don't think that will result in them taking the the Nets poo-poo platter, but, you know, it might be like the season starts and the Sixers realize the Simmons-Embiid thing just isn't working and they decide, okay, you know, we're willing to put Simmons on the table and maybe the Rockets relent a little bit also and they say, rather than asking for Simmons plus draft picks, we'll just take Simmons. Um, there, there may be some kind of compromise there, but I, I feel pretty confident that ultimately they're going to get like a pretty decent return. One would hope, I think. Okay, Joe, thank you for uh, lending your insights to the Paul George and James Harden situations, but I brought you on for a very specific reason, and that reason is to discuss the Western Conference. And I have tiered them out, and we'll talk about the teams based on, from top to bottom, where they are in the tiers, and we'll walk through it that way. So, we'll walk through my tiers right now, and you'll have to let me know where we disagree, as I know, and to quote you, your tiers are irrefutable. (laughs) (laughs) So, my first tier has only one team. It is the Los Angeles Lakers. My second tier contains the Clippers, the Nuggets, and the Mavericks. My third tier, Portland and fourth, Phoenix State, fifth, the Grizzlies, Timberwolves, Spurs, and Pelicans, then the Kings, then OKC. So altogether, seven tiers for 15 teams. That's that's too many tiers, man. Like, it feels almost (laughs) antithetical to the idea of tiering in the first place. Like, you you might as well just rank them 1 to 15 at that point. Oh, hell no. What would I do with the Grizzlies, Timberwolves, Spurs, and Pelicans? Or the Um, Clippers, Nuggets, and Mavericks? How could I possibly rank those teams? Did you mention the Rockets in there, by the way? I don't think I heard the Rockets mentioned. Yeah, I don't know where they go. Because the James Harden thing is up in the air. (laughs) Fair. Um, Okay, so look, I I think it's totally reasonable to put the Lakers in their own tier. Like if I had to pick a championship favorite, it would definitely be them. But as you know, when I did mine, I I had them and the Clippers in a tier by themselves. And, And the reason for that is... I don't really see any other teams winning the West this year. And I actually like, I think there is a plausible scenario in which the Clippers win it. Uh, So that's where I kind of found the separation between them 
and the rest of that pack in the West, uh, which includes Dallas and Portland and Denver. Um, I, I think all those teams are really good. I think all those teams could give either the Lakers or the Clippers a series and maybe even upset one of those teams in a series. But I, I really don't see any of those teams actually winning the West this year. Uh, so I kind of drew a distinction between teams that I could actually see coming out of that conference and teams that I can see being frisky and posing a challenge and making those teams uncomfortable, but ultimately coming up short. Interesting. Okay, so I guess we'll discuss the the differences down the line. Let's start Lakers. And I'll make my case for why the Lakers are the standalone. And then if you want to maybe say that they're not that good or my expectations are a little bit too high, then feel free. So functionally, I expect LeBron James, his production, to be, if not static, near static. I expect it to be roughly around the same thing. I think he'll affect the on-court performances of his teammates roughly to the same degree. And I think that Anthony Davis will be just as good, if not better. I think they've really come to play together exceptionally well. I think that they'll be more emboldened to play to Davis's strengths defensively. And it'll be interesting to see how they handle that now that they're not as big a team. I'm excited to see what he does this year. It could be a defensive player of the year, year for Anthony Davis. And then Danny Green, losing him, I think hurts quite a bit. Wesley Matthews, as far as stylistically, is a very nice pickup to replace some of those Danny Green minutes. Dennis Schroeder, a guy who was, you know, kind of marketed in the media as this guy who's like this sixth man, standalone gunslinger who comes off the bench, was actually very, very dependent on Chris Paul and Shea Gilgis Alexander's creation to work as an off-ball threat and especially a shooter. I think that's covered by minutes with LeBron, and I think that he and Montrez Harrell will steamroll some bench units with pick-and-roll play during the regular season. Marcus Gasol, even at 12, 15 minutes a game, I'm just imagining a lineup that has Gasol, LeBron, and AD for you know, 10, 12 minutes of a game, maybe a bit less than that. That seems really difficult to score on. And that's 10 minutes of a game that the other team is going to have like an 85 offensive rating, it seems like. It's tough. So that's basically functionally my case for the Lakers. I don't care much about Kuzma. Caruso is good and serviceable. Uh, KCP is also good and serviceable, albeit with a bit higher ceiling than Caruso. That's that's how I feel about the Lakers. I, I think that's all fair. Uh, those are all the reasons that I would actually peg them as the favorite. Um I think those lineups that you mentioned with Gasol, AD, and LeBron out there are going to be super interesting. Defensively, I agree. It'll be a challenge, especially to score on them on the interior. Like, I don't know. I think really the way to combat that lineup is to downsize. And obviously, you know, you need somebody in that, quote, small ball lineup who is capable of guarding AD. But even, like, let's say it's the Clippers, for example, if you believe that Kawhi can guard AD, which I kind of do, and that, you know, one of Marcus Morris or Paul George can do a half decent job on LeBron. And then one of those guys essentially, or, or really anybody else, like this is the thing with Gasol, right? As I think you can kind of stick virtually any size player on him 
And I don't think he's going to burn you at the offensive end. You know, like I, I, he's, he's not much of a post player anymore. He's not really an offensive rebounder. And so I think if you can play five out and space the floor and drag those guys out to the perimeter to try and mitigate the rim protection that's on the floor for the Lakers in that alignment, then that's a way that you can find your find yourself actually putting up enough points to counteract what that lineup would be able to do to you at the other end. Um, but I like the shooter edition cause I, I really do think that they were pretty short on complimentary ball handling. I don't know if I love him as like a fit in the starting lineup. I think, I mean, he had such an outlier shooting season and I guess we have to wait and see if it was an outlier or not, but like he bested his two point and three point percentages by such a significant margin uh, that I I just think that I need to see that happen again before I believe that it's actually real. And uh, he's actually, he's a smart cutter. Like he can play off ball for sure, but uh, I I see him occupying more of that six man role actually than being kind of uh, like a secondary ball handler in a lineup with LeBron. But yeah, I mean, like, I, I definitely, uh, there's no doubt in my mind that that is, that they are the favorite, that they are the team to beat. Um, I just don't think the gap between them and the Clippers is so significant that I would actually put them in different tiers. Um, and maybe that's just, you know, residual pride or stubbornness on my part, because I I believed in the Clippers all last season, pretty much right up until like the second half of game seven against Denver. I believed that that team could win the championship and maybe I'm just not willing to let that go. And it's blinding me a little bit to that team's deficiencies, but I think they're close enough and have a good enough chance of unseating the Lakers that I, that I feel okay about putting them in the same tier. So for the Clippers, if you look at that team and I think it's fair, I also thought the Clippers would win last year. My, my preseason pick was Philly. Cause I thought, Embiid is going to do in the playoffs what we saw him do the year prior, which was kind of a world-ending presence. But Philly, I abandoned halfway through the season, and I said, okay, the Clippers will do it. I just think they'll be able... I don't know who can guard Paul George and Kawhi Leonard at a decent enough level on the wings, and I certainly didn't think the Lakers were a good matchup for the Clippers. What have the Clippers done to make you think that... And it's fine if the answer is they just underperformed last year they'll perform adequately this year but have they done anything with their roster that makes you excited about something they've added or like a guy like Jamichael Green leaving is not a huge huge loss but it's a loss what have they done with their roster that makes you say okay they can do this thing or is it just the returnees it's more just that I thought they underperformed last year and that they can be better than that I do think the Ibaka addition for them is a good one. I kind of expect, and I'm stepping a little bit on a pound the rock podcast that we're going to do tomorrow about breakout and regression candidates. But I think Ibaka is one of the guys who I expect to regress this coming season because the Clippers, you know, their biggest weakness is they don't really have a primary facilitator. Like they don't have a traditional point guard. And I think Ibaka has been a very dependent scorer and the offensive seasons that he's had the last couple of years with the Raptors have been aided in large part by playing alongside Kyle Lowry, who just kind of spoon feeds him pocket passes 
you know, in, on the short roll and the pick and pop. And I think that's going to be a bit of a challenge for him. He's not a guy who can really create his own offense aside from just sort of getting putbacks. And I think that might make him less effective as an offensive player. Defensively, he's kind of been slipping for a while, but he's still a pretty significant upgrade in that regard over Montrez Harrell. So, you know, they didn't really solve their AD problem. Like they still just don't have anybody to guard him. Uh, And that's certainly going to be an issue if they wind up matching up in a playoff series. Like I really do think Kawhi might be their best option there. But um, I think that in a playoff setting, swapping out Harold for Ibaka does make them better, Uh, even though they might miss Harold's interior scoring. Like that was kind of an underplayed thing, I think, for them is that they didn't they didn't put a lot of pressure on the rim last year. They got to the free throw line a lot, but they were pretty jump shot reliant and especially losing Harold, who was probably their best interior scorer uh, might exacerbate that problem. So I think it's like maybe a slight upgrade in a playoff setting. And then I do think swapping out Shamit for Kennard is also an upgrade, even though I like Shamit's fit because he moves really well without the ball and on a team you know, with ball-dominant guys like Kawhi and PG and Lou Williams. It's important to have somebody like that. But, you know, Kennard is also a really good spot-up shooter and maybe doesn't move quite as well without the ball, but can still be pretty effective coming off of pin-downs and handoffs. And when he has the ball in his hands, I think it's just like a much more dynamic player. Like, can actually run pick-and-roll, um, can be a playmaker. And there's maybe some redundancy there, but, like, you can never have too much shot creation. So I liked that addition for them. I think the team overall maybe got slightly better. But when I when I talk about them potentially beating the Lakers, I think it's more about them just not crapping the bed in the playoffs. Mm. Uh, the case for Kennard is interesting because I do think he the ceiling of his like secondary action, just as the offense flows during a shot clock, is much higher than Shamit. But as you said, Shamit was a really nice fit just ideally and hypothetically with the the Clippers as well. The Ibaka case, well made. I think you touched on all the spots that you need to when you're talk, talking about Ibaka, which, listener, if you want to hear it expounded upon or expanded upon uh, more, probably just tune in to Pound the Rock podcast, I guess, uh, tomorrow or the day after, <laughs> and you'll hear about other players as well. Uh, yeah, Lowry is very good at servicing big men and then getting them exorbitant contracts. We have seen it done. It might happen with Chris Boucher and Aaron Baines this year even, perhaps even Alex Len. So a case well made, although I'm still, I maintain that the Lakers sit a full tier and I'm, I'm fine to disagree there. So now we have to discuss why the Nuggets are a tier below the Clippers. And the Nuggets, I think, could win the West. So why do we disagree on that? What what shortcomings do you see for that team that they just cannot win the West? Does it have to do with Jamal Murray not being as much of a human torch in the future? Or what's the reasoning there? Well, Jamal Murray was a human torch throughout the playoffs, and they still weren't even really close to knocking off the Lakers. Like they That's another team that just doesn't really have a good answer for Anthony Davis. And now, you know, with Jeremy Grant gone, like I actually think I don't, I don't know if I'd go as far as to say that he did them a favor but they were reportedly willing to match 
the Pistons offer for Jeremy Grant. And I think it's better for them that they didn't just in the big picture because that is too much money for Jeremy Grant. But I do think that hurts them in a playoff matchup against either the Clippers or the Lakers because Grant was the primary on Kawhi. He was often the primary on LeBron. He was often the primary on AD. And I think him leaving just leaves them pretty thin on wing defense. And Torrey Craig also. I mean, Craig's lack of offensive punch kind of made him unplayable at points in the playoffs. But as a matchup guy that you could throw out there in a pinch to guard opposing big wings, he was pretty damn effective. And I don't know. What what do they have in the way of wing defense now that could allow them to match up with a team like the Clippers or Lakers? So if it's wing defense... There is very little that I wouldn't just throw Gary Harris at. And, and I mean that. I think Gary Harris can guard up. Now, the Anthony Davis problem, I think, still looms large. And I talked to a guy who is, I guess, fluent in biomechanics as much as that is seen as like a, a pseudoscience in uh, basketball talk. The biomechanics of Gary Harris's jumper. And he seemed to think that it was poised to return. So I don't know what that means, but <laughs> I'm really big on Gary Harris. I would throw him at a lot of wing players. Yeah, no, I'm, as... I'm, I'm big on Gary Harris too, as you well know. But I think he, his strength to me is guarding like point guards and, and playing like the, like the climbing over the top of screens, like pursuing the ball from behind. Like that to me is his strength more so than guarding huge wings. Like he... He's obviously very strong for his size, but that's asking a lot of him to tackle like a Kawhi or LeBron, don't you think? It it just depends on what the rest of the defense is doing, you know? Because if you're if you're asking like every single action, you climb over top, you chase. Maybe if there's some combinations that you hedge, if there's some combinations that you switch, if it's Michael Porter Jr., if it's whatever, like it it really depends on what the defense wants to do. I'm, I keep getting more and more surprised by how often teams can get away with worse defenders or small defenders. Like, as, as you claimed, I know Kawhi and Gary Harris aren't the same guy, but with Anthony Davis, I'm assuming the reason you thought or you think Kawhi can hang with them is because you take away Anthony Davis's legs, you kind of push him and keep him out to the outside, and the, you know, maybe best lob threat of all time is less of a concern around the rim, something like that. Gary Harris, as you said, is very strong. I think there's a taking away of the legs that he can do against bigger wing players, and there's a an overloading of uh, defense that you can do to compensate for that. That's not the fix, but I think in spots, I, I wouldn't be surprised if, if they do something like that. But as you said, he's also a very good point guard defender. D- does any of that make sense? Yeah, no, totally it does. And I think... It's just like if you're talking about, okay, we're going to put the Nuggets in a playoff series against the Clippers or Lakers. I feel like both of those teams have way more options to guard the Nuggets than vice versa. Um, And and like Jokic can certainly pose a lot of problems, especially for the Clippers, I think. Uh, And obviously we we saw that play out in the playoffs this year. So I I don't think, you know, like Serge Ibaka magically is going to fix their Nikola Jokic problem. Uh, honestly, playing Zubac more might go a longer way toward fixing that problem. You should play way more. Zubac is really good, I think. He is. Like, I, and I don't, yeah. 
like yeah he's he's fairly slow like he's not great at guarding in space but as an interior defender he is super effective and that can be it doesn't have to just manifest itself as like post defense like I point people often to Luka Doncic's stats in the first round against the Clippers, you know, when Zubac was on compared to when he was off. And his numbers completely fell off a cliff when Zubac was on the floor just because he had a much harder time finding his way to the rim and to the free throw line. Um, he's he's an actually like a really, really good uh, at rim defender. And like Davis has a lot of speed on him, but I think... You know, the fact that Montrez Harrell was allowed to go up against uh, Nikola Jokic as often as he was was as big a problem as anything, I think, for the Clippers in the playoffs last year. I think they would have won if they would have played Zubac more. That's that's just me. I also hang on to the idea that uh, if the 76ers would have traded for Gallinari instead of Tobias Harris, <laughs> they would have won the chip. And I was emboldened by that fact when I saw somebody tracked that Ben Simmons had the most above-the-break three assists in the league last year, and I was like, oh, who's one of the best above-the-break shooters in the league? Is that Danilo Gallinari's music? But anyway, I, I'll hold on to that till I die. They made the wrong trade. Regardless, uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Jokic obviously presents varied, a multivariate analysis for a team in how they're like, how the hell do we stop this guy? And the Clippers, I think, didn't do their due diligence in unleashing or unshackling Zubac in that matchup. But let's talk Mavericks. You talked about Luka Doncic, a guy who, as you said, was more troubled by Zubac, but is not troubled by very many looks that teams throw at him. He's leading the Mavericks into the fray. Porzingis is, you know, a darling of the numbers, a... uh, a villain to some and for good reason because of the um, allegations against him regarding uh, sexual abuse, rape. The Mavericks, though, I think with Dorian Finney-Smith, with Josh Richardson, with Tim Hardaway Jr., I think found three guys who actually fit quite well. And I'm projecting with Josh Richardson but especially Dorian Finney-Smith and Tim Hardaway Jr. fit really well with Luka Doncic. If Luka takes another step, which I know is a big ask, but it might happen, what stops them from coming out of the West in your eyes? So Porzingis' health to me is a concern. Uh, he's starting the season on the shelf. Uh, I think it, it was a meniscus tear, right? That's what's keeping him out? I, I think so, yes. Um, and just like with his history of knee injuries... That scares me. Like, I think there's definitely a realistic scenario in which he just isn't fully healthy, like for the entire season. And he obviously is a huge, huge part of what they do. And I really like the Richardson edition, but that to me, even with him, because he's another guy uh, in a sort of similar vein to Gary Harris, though I think Gary Harris is a better defender, but um They do have the size and the length and the strength to kind of slide up and guard wings, but I feel like they're at their best guarding, you know, opposing guards. And especially with like the construction of the Mavs roster, like Richardson to me is going to be the guy they asked to guard opposing point guards because Luca is their offensive point guard, but defensively, uh, I don't think you typically want him guarding point guards. So I feel like that'll be Richardson's job. And that leaves more or less just Finney Smith kind of on the wing. And I like Finney Smith, but I, again, I just don't know if they 
have enough there in terms of their perimeter defense to get through. Like their offense is obviously going to be devastating. I mean, it was literally the greatest offense of all time last season. And I see no reason why they would take any kind of significant step back this year, unless, you know, Porzingis is just unavailable for, you know, a lot of the season. Um, But it's the defensive side of the ball. that still concerns me a little bit with that team. I, uh, what do you think is their best five man lineup? If he had to project it. That's really interesting. I mean, Everyone loved the Porzingis at the five lineups they played last year. And certainly in the second half, the numbers on those lineups were really good. I kind of like their two big looks and you can maybe quibble over who's actually the five in that lineup. But I like like him playing next to Kleba works Mm -hmm. for me. Uh, I think Kleba's really good uh, and can actually move his feet well enough to guard on the perimeter like they used him a lot of time as their primary defender on Kawhi when they played the Clippers last year. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something to be said for teams that just have, like if you have a couple of big guys who can move their feet pretty well and protect the rim where you don't really have to play a drop coverage because you're always going to have one of those guys hanging back uh, and available for help defense. I just I like that look defensively, I think, more than a lot of the smaller switchable looks that maybe leave you with less rim protection and leave your big guys out of position with not a lot of help defense behind them. And I think the fact that both of those guys can space the floor makes it viable offensively, even if, you know, their their better offensive lineups have Porzingis playing the five without another big. So I kind of think maybe it's Porzingis, Kleba. Finney Smith, Richardson, Doncic. Um, I think uh, I think I swap Hardaway Jr. and Richardson. I like Hardaway Jr.'s uh, screening and shooting a lot, especially next mm-hmm. to Doncic. Yeah, and but the defensive drop off there that doesn't concern you. I know everyone's like on this train that that Hardaway got so much better at defense, and I I think that's probably true. But the baseline that he was starting from still makes that pretty unimpressive to me. Like, I didn't really see it with him at the defensive end last year the way that some people seem to. I I don't think his defense was was really good. I don't think it's that big a jump. That, I don't know who alluded to that, but the people that are saying that, I disagree. But as far as the wheel greasing that he does on offense, I think is really, really underrated. I like what he brings a lot to that side of the floor especially with a lot of their actions where they actually, he is just a, a screener and he provides a lot of the spacing. And if you're giving Luca more space and more shooting, I think that ends up being really good. And Josh Richardson, despite having, I thought a phenomenal year in Miami had a, a very down year in Philly where it was kind of confusing how he was used and he didn't really find his place. So he has to recapture that. And if he does, then you're probably correct in saying that, He's the guy to slot in at the two. Uh, Portland, Utah, thoughts? Who do you want to talk about first? Uh, Portland. Really interested in Portland. Um, Okay. I asked this question to Michael Pina, and I'm going to ask it to you, because he was talking about why Portland hadn't traded for Aaron Gordon. And I asked him, would you rather have Aaron Gordon or Robert Covington on that team? Who would you rather have? Um. Well, yeah, they tried, right? They tried to trade for Gordon. Apparently, they they offered yeah. the same deal. I think that they offered uh, for Covington. Um, 
I think I think I would rather have Covington. Me too. Because I I feel like yes, they do and will eventually need like a one-on-one stopper on the wing and I think that Gordon probably is better in that role than Covington is. But I think more than that, they need an elite help defender like Covington because there are a bunch of defensive weak spots that still need to be covered for. And I think Covington gives you a little bit more versatility as a guy. Like he, to me, is a better rim protector, a better defender than Gordon is. And I think ultimately that's going to go a longer way toward bringing their defensive floor up than Gordon would. And I also think, you know, like, yeah, Gordon can do a little bit more stuff with the ball in his hands than Covington can. He's a better passer. But do they really need that? Like, they already have this dual ball handler offense where, like, Dame especially, I mean, he's just become so good at setting the table for everybody else. And um, and Covington's a much better shooter. So I feel like having a guy like that um, who is just going to be, you know, like – He's not an incredible shooter, but he's a very willing shooter. And in terms of volume and accuracy, like he's just been way above where Gordon's been at in that respect for the last few years. So I feel like that's kind of a better fit for them. You and Michael basically gave the same answer and came to a separate conclusion. So I think that that's great. Uh, The comment about Covington being a willing shooter, I think is an important one and more people need to understand who's willing and who's not willing because if Robert Covington despite shooting a worse percentage than Marcus Saul for example was in the positions that Marcus Saul was in in that Celtic series the Raptors probably win that series because he's going to shoot the ball more when he's wide open and that's something Covington does he even shoots like contested shots at an okay rate so that's important as far as the defensive thing yes Covington is an excellent, perhaps one of the best in the league, quote-unquote, worker. He is so good near the lane to get his hand on a bunch of balls. He has kind of this incredible sense of where to be, and he can cover numerous guys at once just because of his, you know, the way he reads the spacing of the floor defensively. So I I also like Covington better for the Trailblazers for just this year than I do uh, Gordon. But the Trailblazers in general... They're not, I didn't consider them a contender, like really at all. I think they could get to the conference finals. I wouldn't be super shocked if Dame, who, you know, his playoff exploits are maybe a bit overrated as far as in his career because he has those shots in his back pocket, which incredible shots, of course. But if Dame and CJ kind of, they maintain while other teams wilt, that I wouldn't shock me if the if the Trailblazers, along with Nurkic, have enough of a framework to get into like the conference finals. But what do you like most about that team? You you mentioned a dual ball handler type of system. Is that something you really like? I mean, I mean, you like Indiana, which is almost completely different than that. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, I don't. I'm not doctrinaire in what I do or don't like. I like a lot of different things. I we've seen a couple of times now, um, notably in that game seven against the Nuggets a couple of years back and then last year in the play-in game against Memphis where Dame is basically getting face-guarded because the other team just sort of wants to take him out of the play at all costs and also just maybe needs a breather. 
because he's doing so much of the heavy lifting. And in both of those instances, McCollum was able to completely take over. And he has a lot of flaws there. I think there's a little bit more flash than actual substance there in a lot of cases. But one thing he is most definitely able to do is to create his own shot. And he does that at a really, really high level. And so I just like them being able to have that to fall back on, um, like the ability to get game breather and for another guy to be able to sort of take over the offense. Obviously, that's a big playmaking drop off, you know, when it comes to getting other guys involved. But as somebody who can kind of just take over a game on their own, uh, I think that's a pretty nice security blanket to have. And I, I just like them now because I think their roster makes so much more sense than it has in like a really long time. And to me, like the best iteration of that team was a couple of years ago when they won 54 games. They went to the conference finals, even without Nurkic. And I think now like the team that they have is better, like on paper, at least it's better than that team was. It makes more sense than that team does. Like, I mean, obviously they're going to hope to have Nurkic this time for the playoff run, which will be better than having Ennis Cantor there. Uh, even though Cantor was actually low key, pretty great for them during that playoff run. Uh, they've essentially swapped out Mo Harkless and Al Farouk Aminu for Derek Jones Jr. and Robert Covington. And I think uh, their wing situation actually is better now than it's been pretty much at any point during the Lillard era. Maybe since like they had Wes Matthews and Nick Batum. Yeah, I actually think the combination of Covington and McCollum is better than Matthews and Batum. It, that's just a preference thing. And the the point you bring up about the team that was the 54-win team, Sands, Nurkic in the playoffs was probably the best rendition. Agreed. And on paper, should be better this year. Also agreed. Whether Nurkic, because he was, it seemed like Nurkic was really close. By the analytics, was like top 20 as far as what he was being considered league-wide, like top 40, top 35 player. If he's going to do that again, this team gets really fun, really fast. And there's a, there's a lot of fun guys that are just kind of waiting in the wings on the Trailblazers as well. But as you say, they, they are a fun team. And the question I want to ask is, would you rather have CJ or DeMar DeRozan? Oh, man, that is a toughie. I think everything's dependent on, on roster context, obviously. Right. In a vacuum, DeRozan, even though, you know, he doesn't shoot threes and that's become this big bugaboo uh, and, you know, from a team building perspective, it does make things a little bit building around him. He has like become a more efficient scorer than McCollum. I mean, he was up over 60% true shooting last year just because of how effectively he scored at the rim and got to the free throw line. But I think in a playoff setting, even though like DeRozan's a much better playmaker than McCollum, there, there's just something about CJ I feel like that seems to translate pretty well to high leverage. And maybe it's just that like those couple of games that I mentioned are sticking out in my mind and, and clouding my judgment a little bit. But my thing with McCollum is like you can look at all the numbers. He doesn't score that efficiently, like middling true shooting, barely ever gets to the free throw line, doesn't actually shoot that many threes, like a, a huge proportion of his shots come from the long mid range. And 
yeah, he's just generally like not that productive a player on balance, but the amount of shake that he has to his game, like his ball handling ability, his ability to create separation. I just think that makes him a little bit better as a playoff player than DeMar. I think it's really close, but I think by a hair, I would probably take CJ. I think I'd go the other way. And I think it's because on the one hand, I think that DeMar has been not not the same situation that Dame was in where it's face guarded and the ball has to come loose, but it's just the pressure cooker. DeMar was usually the focal point. And that doesn't mean he was the best player. Kyle Lowry was always the best player, but DeMar was the focal point of late game offense, typically, even if and Kyle Lowry scored on a lot of secondary actions in late game stuff and still continues to do so. But it's the three-point shooting versus three-point creation for me when it comes to McCollum and DeMar. And DeMar actually assisted on more three-pointers last year than Dame. He had 211 three-point assists. Dame had... 208 and I that is the roster construction aspect of it is that I think DeMar can maximize shooting on a team really really well as we've seen with San Antonio or maximize shooters I should say rather than shooting because San Antonio doesn't shoot a bunch of them but that's that's the interesting part of it for me it's there's no stakes to this conversation I just I wanted to ask you that because I think that's interesting it is it's a really interesting conversation I think I mean it just it probably comes down to the off ball stuff. Like if, if DeMar is out there in like a pressure cooker playoff game, like what is he doing when he doesn't have the ball? He almost forces you to ram every possession through him as the ball handler. And as good as he's gotten, you know, as a pick and roll playmaker. And that that's actually a pretty jaw dropping stat that you mentioned about the three point assists. Uh, He's come a long way in that department, but if, if that is the route that you're forced to go, then I feel like you are going to be in a bit of trouble. So this is where, where it gets into like the roster context stuff, right? Because if, if you're asking, okay, do you want CJ or DeMar to be the best player on your team in a playoff setting? Then I, I think that's fair. Then yeah, you'd want DeMar probably. Um, but I think in either scenario, you're kind of boned. Yeah, <laughs> you most definitely are. Yes, 100%. Okay, Utah. They have Bogdanovich back, if I remember correctly, or should be along shortly. He was, you know, that team, it's Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert. They thought it would be, you know, Bogdanovich and Conley both at really high highs. Conley obviously had a a much better finish to the year, but a terrible start last year. It's a strange roster construction. I don't know if who's going to stop them or like who's stopping this team was the proper marketing tool for the Jazz to run with last year, but it is what they did. This year they come in with still a you know a host of good players, a slightly overpaid Jordan Clarkson who is still going to be important for that team, so it makes sense. And what do you make of the Jazz? They're confusing to me because I don't think that Donovan, the same way I don't think that Jamal Murray is truly, you know, the 40 point per game scorer that he was in the bubble. I don't think Donovan is either. So what do you make of this team? Is Gobert their best player? And then continue from that question, please. (laughs) 
yes, I believe Gobert is their best player as of right now. If Mitchell is actually, I mean, he's not going to be the guy he was in the bubble because he averaged like 36 points on 72% true shooting or something like that. So he's obviously he's not that pump. guy. But if he is, you know, if that's an indication of what he's capable of, then obviously Mitchell's their best player. But uh, all the evidence aside from that suggests that Gobert is the more impactful player. My read on them is pretty simple. I just think they're like a classic high floor, low ceiling team. And, you know, Mitchell being able to replicate what he did in the playoffs last year obviously changes the ceiling. But I don't know. I just this and this is the thing with Gobert, right? Like I can say he's their best player because he is the sort of rising tide that lifts all boats on defense. Like they're pretty much assured of having even though they actually only finished 11th last year, like they're assured of having something close to a top 10 defense as long as he's there. Uh, he cleans up so many mistakes and just makes life easier for everybody around him. But then the playoffs hit, and it's like, it's not on defense actually where I think that comes for him. The way I feel like that's been the perception is that like he's a less effective defender in the playoffs, which is maybe true to an extent. But I think his offensive limitations actually come to the fore more so than his defensive limitations in the playoffs. And the fact that, you know, switching defenses in particular have really given the Jazz problems in the playoffs because there just isn't a whole lot that Gobert can do against switches. He does not have a refined post game. He's not much of a playmaker. And those limitations, I think, more than anything, are what have prevented the Jazz from making any meaningful noise in the playoffs. That makes sense to me. I I agree that I think the defensive shortcomings are overstated for Gobert and should probably be routed to the the offensive limitations that come. As far as Bogdanovich, do you think he's a, a game changer at any level? And I suppose maybe you answered this with the high floor, low ceiling. I mean, mm-hmm. I'll ask you that question and we can probably move on from the Jazz because high floor, low ceiling teams... I think are really fun for the fan base because you can talk yourself into progression from any number of players while your team is still good. Uh, Raptors fans might know a little <laughs> something about those types of teams. But as far as you and I talking about it, there's not a lot of permutations that I see being game changing. But Bogdanovich, thoughts? He was awesome last year. And mm-hmm. I think he might have had their best on-off splits. They were eight points per hundred better with him on the floor than with him on the bench. So it's actually really impressive that they came as close as they did to knocking off the Jazz, uh, sorry, the Nuggets without him. And obviously the Nuggets were dealing with their own injuries. Gary Harris didn't come back until game six. Barton was out for the whole series. So maybe that's closer to being a wash. But just given how important Bogdanovich was to them in the regular season, I I found it pretty surprising and pretty impressive that they went down to the wire, you know, came – within that that Mike Conley heave that went halfway down away from uh, advancing and, you know, maybe ultimately going to the West Finals, though I think they probably would have gotten dusted by the Clippers. Uh, But yeah, I think he obviously helps. I mean, that offense, like just running that spread pick and roll with Mitchell and Gobert surrounded by the kind of shooting that they have in Ingles, Bogdanovich, two of the best corner three-point shooters in the league, and then Conley, who can be a floor spacer and also 
you know, a secondary creator who can attack a closeout and put the ball on the floor or, you know, you flow from one pick and roll into the next. It's a pretty good setup. And their starting lineup is really good. Like even last year when I think they were seen by a lot of people as a disappointment, their starting lineup kicked ass. And where they gave a lot of it back was just in their transitional lineups and bench heavy groups. And I think, you know, Clarkson helped in that regard. They just really needed the scoring punch off the bench. I think bringing favors back will help them and also just gives them the flexibility to play two bigs together. Uh, And as dicey as the offensive fit is between favors and Gobert, that's always been a really, really good defensive group when those two guys play together. So I think they have a little bit more flexibility than they had last year. Their bench will be a little bit better and hopefully Conley will be better from start to finish than he was last year when he just got off to that catastrophic start. So I think that like they have the potential to be like a top four team record wise in the regular season, but I still just think they're going to run into some limitations in the playoffs unless, unless Mitchell is just like an absolute flamethrower. I think ultimately that's really what it comes down to. They're like the inverse of the Celtics built for the regular season, not for the postseason. <laughs> I think, do we have, are any of our tiers the same? Because Phoenix and Golden State, for me, I'm just like, that is a tier. That that really makes sense to me. Yeah, so I had the Lakers and Clippers in the top tier, and then my next tier was the Blazers, Nuggets, Mavs, Jazz, Suns, and the Rockets with Harden. Um, and I didn't have the Warriors in that tier because... Yeah, I don't know. I just don't... Was that prior to Clay's injury? Or after? No, no, no. After. Okay. After. I was like, with, with, Joe, with, that's wild. <laughs> no, no, no. With with Clay, I would 100% have them in that group. And I, I don't think that I would feel confident enough in them to bump them into the Lakers and Clippers tier. But I would probably say that that was the team that I felt best about actually making that jump. Uh, I just would have had to actually see it and see how Clay looked coming back before I was ready to make that bump. But... Without Clay, they really just don't have a ton of shooting. And I think maybe I'm just scarred from like the first five games that I watched them play last year before Steph broke his hand when they were getting absolutely shit kicked. They had no answers on defense. I do think they'll be better defensively now than they were last year, but. You know, Steph was getting double and triple teamed and there wasn't a whole lot that the Warriors could do to punish teams for that because of the lack of shooting and secondary creation around Steph. And I I just think that's going to continue to be an issue for them. I really like Oubre. Like, I'm glad they went out and got him. I think that's about as well as they could have done with that trade exception. And he will help. Like, he is probably a little bit better in theory as a defender than he is in reality, but he certainly has the tools. He's incredibly long. Um, and I think he actually showed a lot of growth as a help defender last year. And as you mentioned, the man knows how to punch a gap. He's really good at attacking scrambled defenses. He's a, he's a great cutter and he's great in transition. And I think the Warriors are going to run a lot, so he'll be effective there. I just... I don't know. And maybe a lot of this comes down to Draymond too, right? Like, is... Is he 
really just on the decline or did he kind of mail it in last year? Because if he can ramp it back up to where he was at a couple of years ago, then that changes the equation significantly. Yeah, Draymond is because there's no reason off of a five game sample to think that Curry is over the hill or whatever aging allegory or term there is metaphor, whatever it is, insert whatever you like. Curry probably isn't that. Draymond is another question. If he's like defensive player of the year, incredible split action passer, you know, fantastic chaos creator, then everything starts to look quite a bit different. As you said, Ubre, the man can punch a gap. I think he'll be uh, very nice offensively next to Curry, even if, like you say, maybe the idea of him defensively is better than the reality, which is something I also agree with, uh, although he is he's fine on that end to me. As far as the Suns, why did you pick them instead of the Warriors? Does Chris Paul make you very confident? Is Devin Booker doing a lot of the heavy lifting? Is it DeAndre Ayton's steps towards better defense at the end of last season? What's what's making you choose them? I think I, I don't even think that that many things have to go, you know, quote unquote, right for them to be a really good team next year. Like, I think if Ayton takes like a minor step forward, Chris Paul stays reasonably healthy. Like. Uh, to me, that's all it really takes for them to to be like a solid playoff team. And I just think more stuff has to go right for the Warriors for them to get into that conversation. I, I really like the construction of the Suns roster. I think it makes a ton of sense. And I thought the Crowder addition was sneakily really great for them. Like having the flexibility to play him at the three or the four, um, you know, in bigger or smaller groups. And I, I think... You know, the fit between Paul and Booker is an awesome one to me. Like, I think Paul can cover for Booker's defensive weaknesses in a lot of the same ways that Rubio did. Um, like, Paul is just like a, like a better version of Rubio, right? Like, he is, uh, I don't know, how would you compare them as playmakers? I guess maybe you would say they're, like, equivalent but I think Paul, uh, Rubio is a better connective playmaker, but mm-hmm. I mean, Paul with his shooting is a much better on ball uh, creator, I think, right. or playmaker. Yeah. And so, like, I think Booker is an excellent off ball player as much as, you know, the Suns have by necessity had to put the ball in his hands a ton over the last few years because they haven't had a point guard, like bringing Rubio in even you know, he's like a league average starter at the point guard position. And I thought that did wonders for Booker's game, just moving him off the ball a little bit and, you know, exploring his post game. Like there were just like a lot of really nice cuts and duck ins from him last year that we didn't get a chance to see the preceding seasons. And he's going to have the opportunity to continue doing that playing alongside Chris Paul. But he's also when he has the ball in his hands and, and CP is on the floor, he's going to have a guy that can actually space out for him. They can stagger those guys, you know, and have one of them on the floor pretty much at all times. And I think like they really, to me, have the potential to be like a top five offense, I think. And so from there, if their defense is league average, which it was 17th last year, so they're not far off, then I mean, they're they're butting up against home court advantage in the first round. Uh, I, I don't. Like, what are the weaknesses of that team, I guess, is my question. Like, where are they deficient to you? 
I don't think they are deficient in any one area. I did a lot of film on Aiton when I was doing the top 100, and I thought that his steps in the second half of the season defensively were actually really good. And a lot of the things that you point to Zubach and how he's effective as a defender, Aiton, I think, kind of just stepped right into a lot of those positive attributes just by he's a talented guy. And he moves better than Zubac as well. And he's obviously a better offensive uh, player. I think the Aiton, his defensive step was awesome last year and might have helped seeing how Baines kind of court mapped for 25 games, just to kind of take that into account. Booker is honestly a vastly underrated playmaker at this point too, I think. And as you said, his off-ball stuff is more than an asset. It's very impressive. And Chris Paul... I mean, Chris Paul kicks ass. Some people think he was overrated last year. I don't think he was underrated by anybody last year, or that that was rare. But he still, he kicks major ass. He's very good. Um, I don't know if it's Michael Bridges or Mikhail Bridges. I can't remember which it Mikhail. is. But yeah, Mikhail. Mikhail Bridges is really, really good. The jumper is not ironclad, but the defense is. And it's awesome to see him play. I thought he, he had a fantastic finish to the season. And obviously made room for them to move Ubre Jr. As far as other guys on the roster, I mean, I don't see the weakness. Maybe like a little bit of depth, but they it's a very, very strong roster. They seem to have, in the hierarchy of what's important in the NBA to win, talent, shooting, defense, inertia, I think they have it all. I think they there's no reason why they won't be a very good team. Yeah, to me, the downside for them is just their point guard depth is not great. So if Chris Paul isn't healthy, then they're going to be in trouble. But, you know, barring that, I think they have solid depth at pretty much every position. And I guess there's all their, there's maybe like a central tension there between Chris Paul's kind of slow it down, uh, commandeer the offense style uh, compared to, you know, this motion happy egalitarian system that Monty Williams installed last season. And, you know, they'll probably have to find something of a happy medium there between those two things. But like they've worked together before, obviously back in new Orleans. So I don't see that as being too much of an issue. And I honestly think like if Aiden, like he doesn't have to take the same kind of defensive leap that he took last season. If he just makes like another small step in that direction, given where he left off last year, then I actually think that their defense could be like above average. Um, That's contingent a little bit on Devin Booker continuing to actually try at that end. But, you know, outside of Booker, like there aren't a lot of holes. Like Paul continues to be a really smart, effective, both on ball and help defender. Um, Crowder was awesome uh, defending fours in the bubble. Mikhail Bridges, you mentioned like, one of the better wing defenders in the league already. And so, yeah, I just think like top to bottom, like the fit is right. The talent is there. They have a good mix of young talent and veteran leadership. Uh, It just, it just makes a lot of sense to me. So I think given health, like I, I don't really see a reason why they shouldn't be in that tier with the rest of the, um, I I'll call them fringe contenders in the West. Well made. I think you. I think this conversation changed my tier, and yours. Yours, Joe, remains irrefutable. Let's, As I said, uh, 
Yeah, let's zoom through the Kings and OKC really quick. So the Kings, off the top of my head, uh, De'Aaron Fox should be one of the best point guards in the league within three years. I think he's immense. Just an awesome, awesome player. Marvin Bagley shouldn't have been picked over Luka Doncic, but could also be super interesting. Rashawn Holmes is one of the most underrated centers in the league. Uh, Buddy Heald is a huge question mark, but will shoot the ball regardless. And Harrison Barnes will provide uh, wing. Am I missing anything important on that <laughs> roster? No. I mean, really, like, you could have stopped after the De'Aaron Fox thing. That's, no, to me, Holmes like... deserves his love. Okay, man. okay, I like fair, fair, fair. Uh, I like Holmes as well, but I also think there's a decent chance that he just turns into trade bait midseason because I don't think the Kings are going anywhere, and I feel like just, like, given the contract that he's on and how effective he can be at both ends, like, he would be a pretty hot commodity i think at the deadline like they could probably get a first for him i think so too yeah so, and uh yeah so yeah that that'll be the kings okc shea gilgis alexander is uh very exciting to me i think that his time with chris paul made him much better at routing differently to the rim i think he used to be kind of like a you attack the baseline, you get to your little spot, you hit the little short jumper, but whether it's snaking the pick and roll or kind of slicing in and creating different passing angles, I think he benefited greatly from his time with Chris Paul. I'm excited to see that, see him continue to grow. What else should I be? I guess Poku is on the roster. What else should I be excited for in OKC? Is he going to be on the roster or are they drafting and spashing him? Oh, I assumed he would be on the roster. I, I did not look that I, up, though. Bad I, I don't know sure. on my part. <laughs> um, I, I actually think Darius Baisley could be pretty good. He's like the, you know, the long, raw, non-shooting wing prospect that I actually think has the best hope of panning out there after they kind of whiffed on Terrence Ferguson. And I guess we'll see on Hamadou Diallo, whose defense I actually like. But, but I think Baisley can do a bunch of different stuff. He's like a sneaky good rebounder. Um, he started to shoot the ball a lot better in the bubble. And I think he has the capability to be a multi-positional defender. So that's a guy I would keep an eye on. Obviously, Lou Dort is just a delight. Uh, the league's preeminent fire hydrant or um, what is it? Is it uh brick shithouse that everyone calls him? I feel like I've well, heard that term maybe like six so or seven times in my life. And the vast majority of them have just been in reference to Lou Dort. So Brick Shithouse is definitively that is in the lexicon somewhere. Dan Devine referred to Kyle Lowry as a right. malevolent fire hydrant at some point in time. Yeah. And that, that is yeah, that, that exists out there in the ether. But yeah, Brick Shithouse, I'm sure, works just fine for Lou Dort. Um so yeah, I don't know. What what else is there with the Thunder? I guess we'll see if like Al Horford can rehabilitate his trade value. Yeah. Uh, stuff to look for. Al Horford's trade value in Oklahoma City. Okay, now we've reached the most in my tier list, uh, contentious area of the West. Grizzlies, Timberwolves, Spurs, Pelicans. Uh, just looking at it, the Grizzlies and the Pelicans have the best uh, depth, I believe. The Timberwolves, I actually see as having the highest ceiling. I think that they 
there is room for them to become an offensive juggernaut. And the Spurs, uh, they just, it's hard to make them lose because they're good at basketball, although rarely ever great. So you just have to go and beat them. What do you think about this collection of four teams? Do you have a place to start? Yeah, let's start with the Spurs. Hell yeah. Um, I'm like weirdly really excited to watch this team this year. I, how long are like Aldridge and DeRozan on the team for? Like if One you had to guess, did, did those guys finish? No, but I mean like do, do you think they, they finish the season on the Spurs? Not Aldridge. I think Aldridge gets traded because I think Aldridge is easier to plug into a contender. Uh, you know, thank God I I asked that DeRozan question earlier because now we have background. But I think Aldridge is easier to plug into a contender than DeRozan is. Mm-hmm. And he will cost less for a, a contending team to trade for. But I think DeRozan finishes his contract. I, I like Keldon Johnson and Lonnie Walker and DeJounte a lot. I, I assume it's similar for you. I like all those guys, but my favorite from their group of sort of young-ish players is Derek White. And he's probably going to be my pick for most improved player of the year because I think finally he's actually going to get the opportunity to play enough uh, to showcase his ability. Like what he did in the bubble to me was really eye-opening, like playing a lot more in the pick and roll, bombing threes like he'd never done before and doing it really accurately. I think his defense is fantastic. Like he can guard up, uh, he can guard point guards. He's strong. He's quick. Like, and he's just got great instincts too at that end of the floor. So he's probably the guy that I'm most excited to watch on that team. And I think, you know, they started Bryn Forbes for most of the year until they got into the bubble, just because I think they really needed his shooting. Uh, you know, there frankly just wasn't enough of it in that starting lineup without him. But that robbed us of the ability, I think, to watch uh, White and Murray play alongside each other. Like it just barely happened uh, until the bubble. And then when they finally got an opportunity to do so, they were predictably really great together. And if White can continue to play the way that he did, where he's a legitimate weapon as a pull up shooter and can be something like a secondary playmaker, then I think this could be a really fun team to watch. But you know, the problem, as much as I love DeRozan and I like Aldridge too, like I, I've enjoyed his game over the years, but them being there, difficult. Like that's like the reason that Bryn Forbes had to start and play so often last year was because you had DeRozan and Aldridge there kind of cluttering things up and you needed somebody who could, uh, you know, offer some spacing in the half court. And I guess until they get off of at least one of those guys, it's going to be a challenge. Uh, I don't think they need to trade both of them necessarily. Um, I thought they they looked like really fun and lively without Aldridge in the bubble with DeRozan essentially playing the four. So I think even just, just moving off of Aldridge could go a long way uh, toward making their roster make a bit more sense. But for now, having both of those guys there, I think just makes everything else a bit of a challenge. Bombing threes, comma, accurately. Seems like it would sell really well on a t-shirt in like 2016 era Twitter. Like it seems like a statement made for that. Bombing threes. Made by J.R. Smith. Yeah, something like that. Uh, As far as the Spurs, yeah, I am lower on white than you, I think. But I uh, tend to 
I'll I'll lean on your expertise at any point in time in my life uh, as far as basketball and especially as far as tennis. I mean, if I ever talk tennis with somebody, I'll just read one of your articles that you've written and say, oh, yeah, I like this girl or guy. They're they're good. Boy, do I like them. But as far as uh, Derek White, I'm glad you like him so much. Uh, the trio of young players I mentioned, I I get so much joy from watching them on the Spurs. But again, a confusing team until one of Aldridge or Jerozen leaves. Grizz, Pelicans, Timberwolves. Who do you like next? Let's go Grizz. Okay, go Grizz. John Morant will be the best player this year. Jonas Valanciunas was the best player last year. Am I wrong in that statement? I think... You know, Valanciunas was probably the most productive player last year. These qualitative assessments are always sort of tough just because I think I think what Ja did was harder and more valuable. So you can look at kind of the advanced numbers and the impact stats, and they would point toward Valanciunas being the best player on the Grizzlies, but I actually think that jaw was probably their best player just given what was actually asked of him and as a conductor of that offense like man was he so much further along than i expected him to be in year one like such advanced playmaking chops uh i know you've mentioned before and we've talked about like his mid-air decision making and how incredible it is that he so often manages to make the right decision once he's already left his feet. Um, that's something also that, that Jamal Murray has gotten really, really good at just as a little tangent there. But uh, man, I, yeah, I'm really excited to watch Ja in year two. I think he's going to be super special and obviously starting the year without Jaron hurts and, you know, might be the reason that they don't find themselves in a play in spot, honestly, because he's obviously uh, a big part of what they're building there. But I love Brandon Clark and um, everyone. I, I don't really know much about Desmond Bain, but everyone seems super high on that pick. So for that reason, I'll be excited to watch him also. And uh, the Dylan Brooks experience is always an adventure. So I think of this group, they'll definitely be like the most fun team to watch and the team that I'll probably be tuning into most. Yeah, they they should be oodles and oodles of fun. So D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns. Of the four teams, Carl Anthony Towns is probably the best player among the Grizz, Timberwolves, Spurs, and Pelicans. Why isn't that the best team? <laughs> probably. <laughs> what what holes do you see in their roster? Uh, defense. A lot of holes on defense. Um, <laughs> Like, Rondé can only do so much, you know? Uh, I just... Man, it's it's really hard to build a functional defense when, like, the easiest and best answer for the opposing team is just to run a 1-5 pick-and-roll. Like, just put D'Angelo Russell and Carl Anthony Towns in pick-and-roll, and you will probably find your way to a profitable shot. And so it's like, yeah, they can put better wing defenders around those guys to try to protect them, but... I don't think that Anthony Edwards in year one is going to be that. Uh, I, I like don't. I don't know. I don't see how they're going to stop anybody. Like Rubio helps for sure, but 
I, I just don't think that's doing enough for them that uh, that they're going to be able to craft a functional defense. I do think their offense could be pretty special, you know, to the point that they're not a train wreck. Uh, but I think it might be something akin to what we saw with the Wizards last year, where they're actually, you know, hovering around the top 10 offensively for most of the year, but their defense is so bad that it almost doesn't matter. Does Carl Anthony Towns in drop defense help that at all? It's it, it's always just kind of come in waves with him. Like there have been stretches where I watch him playing drop defense and I'm like, oh my God, he's figuring it out. Like he's being way more patient. He's reading the floor way better. Uh, he's not leaving his feet too early. He's making the right reads. Like his head is on a swivel. Like he's got it. And then it like disappears the next game and you never really see it again. Um, and it, it was interesting because like the, the Wolves were way worse defensively with him on the floor last year. But that was almost entirely opponent three-point shooting. Like, they actually did defend quite a bit better at the rim with him on the floor. So I think a lot of it maybe you could just chalk up to bad luck. And I don't necessarily think that there's anything that Towns is doing to, like, make opponents shoot better on threes. Um, And that's, you know, not really his job anyway, especially if they're asking him to play a drop. So, you know, maybe, maybe a lot of that will start to balance out, but... I still think there are a lot of times where he just looks kind of lost and maybe it's an effort thing and we'll see that start to trend upwards. But that's definitely something that you need to see for an extended stretch before you believe it. I'm predicting a a bounce back from <laughs> Kentucky days, maybe where he was actually hailed as like a defensive juggernaut. Um, I'm I'm predicting that Towns will be much better defensively this year. For a lot of reasons that we see a lot of big men, you know, especially by the numbers, people say, oh, they're defending a lot better because his stuff at the rim. I expect a big jump as far as that goes. So and mixed with, you know, and a historically great offensive repertoire as far as what he brings offensively. They intrigue me. I, I agree with you that the offense could hover around something special. I think that will happen. Last team, the New Orleans Pelicans a team that makes no sense at all. <laughs> After this podcast, I'm recording with Evan Gilberto where we do our season previews for seven teams. Uh, the Wolves and Atlanta Hawks episodes are out currently, so if anybody wants to go uh, watch that, feel free. There's Because Evan is... This is a very shameless self-plug, but I'll, I'll, I'll walk it out. Evan is one of the great archivers of basketball footage on YouTube, and uh, his channel is known for that. So our video podcast has a lot of uh, plays to support what we're saying and uh, a lot of bomb-ass graphics from me. So if you want to go find out about other teams. But the Pelicans, Joe, they they make no damn sense. None at all. But they have good players. So wh- what do we make of them? I, I have no idea. <laughs> I Yeah, it's uh, just, I guess, something that we're going to have to actually see play out on the floor before it starts to make any kind of sense and even then maybe it won't make any sense uh they're apparently planning on rolling out a starting lineup of Bledsoe Lonzo Ingram Zion and Steven Adams which could be a really fun lineup in the open floor but in the half court is gonna be a clogged toilet I think like I don't know how they're generating spacing there and I don't know, maybe ultimately that'll just necessitate a starting lineup change where 
Lonzo's coming off the bench or Bledsoe's coming off the bench and Redick is starting just because uh, they need him to be out there as a release valve and, you know, running dribble handoffs with Zion. But um, I don't know. The, the fit is weird. I'm not a huge Ingram believer. And I just don't... Like, defense was the big issue for this team last year. And, you know, Bledsoe is a great defender, but is I don't think he's a better defender than Drew Holiday. So apart from Zion and I guess Lonzo just, like, getting significantly better at that end, I don't really see how they addressed that issue. Yeah, the Ingram thing, he more than tripled his attempts from three-point land and went from 33% to 39%, which is, I mean, hey, if that's sustainable, then like, hell yeah, Brandon, you, you've you really done something here that makes him way more dangerous offensively because even if he isn't one of the NBA's best three-level scorers, he is a three-level scorer if, that, if those things hold up. So that's encouraging and good. Uh, Zion has obvious limitations to his game that, he'll try and grow out of, but he's, I think, an exceptional passer for his position and for his style of play. So that helps a lot, especially since he should draw a second defender uh, every so often this year. Lonzo and Eric Bledsoe in the half court. I just, (laughs) dude, (laughs) what the hell does that do for you? I, I have no idea what happens with that. And Steven Adams is a good guy and is a, you know, he is a good wheel greaser offensively. He's pretty heady about finding himself in the right spots. But man, I don't know what they're... As you said, transition, hell yeah, go for it, man. Lonzo is one of the best transition decision makers probably ever. He's His feel for that part of the game is exceptional. But the half court, I just have no idea what is going on. It, it'll be like a kid playing NBA 2K on Hall of Fame and just looking around like, is this what basketball is? I can't dribble. I can't do anything. I can't shoot. Why is the game like this? I don't want to play the game anymore. So, uh, yeah, I imagine it'll be something like that. Yeah, it's going to be... I I feel like it could get super weird. And I I am, like, uh, Zion's skill development is just going to be really interesting for me because, you know, coming in, just having watched him in college... Like, I sort of expected from day one that he was going to have the ball in his hands a fair amount. And obviously the defense was like the most disappointing thing about his rookie season. Uh, And he was like a super efficient offensive player. Like his permanent scoring was completely off the charts. But his handle looked terrible to me. Like I, I really expected him to be able to handle the ball a little bit better than he did. So I'm curious to see if that's something that the Pelicans continue to explore and try and like get him up to speed as a ball handler, or they just scrap that and have him play, you know, mostly as an off-ball threat. Yeah, it's a, a whole hodgepodge that if Zion is much better at a few things, it greases the wheels a little bit more. But it just stylistically, there is. I mean, it's it's really tough to say. But Joe, that's. The Western Conference. That feels like a, you know, you know, an hour and a half walk through the Western Conference. I hope that the listener uh, could glean some things from what we said. That's basically what this podcast is supposed to function as, is if you're a Raps fan and you want background on the rest of the league, 
I brought Michael Pina in for the Eastern Conference. I bring Joe in for the Western Conference. Two writers who I think have a great lay of the league. And uh, yeah, Joe, how do you feel about it? I feel great. That was pretty comprehensive. Um, and just talking through that stuff, I feel like gives me like a little bit firmer grasp on you know where I stand and what I'm expecting from some of these teams. Like, like some of them I just haven't really thought about or talked about all that much. So uh, just going through it um, makes me that much more excited, I think, for the season to get underway, even though it feels like the last season just ended. So I feel like I learned quite a few things from you in this podcast, or it rounded out uh, my knowledge on some things. Did I do any of that for you? Is there one insight I could have possibly given you? Because I feel like you're very well-rounded to begin with. Okay, I'm going to, I'll go back and I'll listen to this and I will let you know because <laughs> I feel like, like, uh, while, while I'm doing this and I'm in this zone, like, I don't know, I have to have a lot of knowledge and information on hand and try and say smart things articulately. Like, I can't really focus on anything else. So I'm sure you did. And I'm sure when I go back and re-listen, I will commit and, uh, we'll converse <laughs> in the DMs about what we've both learned. And uh, we'll strong arm our way into compliments as, as we are wont to do. Yeah, looking forward to that, man. All right, Joe, it's been an absolute blast. The floor is yours to push, sell, or promote whatever you like. Uh, it's not that much. I mean, you kind of hit on it at the top of the pod. I write NBA features at the score. Uh, you can check those out on the website or download the mobile app if you don't have it and read me there. You can subscribe or listen to Pound the Rock, which is the podcast, the general NBA podcast that I do with Joseph Cacharo. And you can follow me on Twitter if you're inclined at Joey underscore W. Is it, what is the genesis for that username, by the way? Obviously, it's your name, but phonetically, you thought you'd spell it out. How old were you, question mark, when you made Twitter? Um, I think it was, I can check right now. Was it playful or was Mark. it? Was it playful or was the intention like very witty? Because I remember something. Uh, no, I think it was just like I had a couple friends who referred to me as Joey W, even though like nobody actually calls me Joey, but uh, just as sort of like a playful nickname. And I don't know, just going with the W just didn't seem unique enough. But I thought, you know, if I spelled it out, then that could stand out a little bit more um there's nothing nothing interesting about the genesis of the name um but yeah playful i guess is how i would describe it i well hey i'm a big fan it caught my eye immediately i was like oh that's phonetic that's interesting don't see that very often and so where most most uh i think names on twitter are like if insert name nba something like that you know yeah, I've, I've thought at points about changing it to just something like a little bit more buttoned up and professional, but uh, I don't know. I guess it's working for me for now, and I'm honestly just too lazy to change it, so <laughs> we'll probably be here for a while. That's not me, baby. I don't want the professionalism. I want to keep it light. I want to keep it cute with Joey W. Joe, it's been an absolute blast, sir. Thank you so much for coming on. Thanks so much for having me, man. Always a pleasure. All right, and listener... I hope you tuned in the whole time because that's how you're listening to this now. Or if you're a weird cat who skips to the end, hey, how are you doing again? Uh, that's it for me. That's it for Joe. That's it for you. Thank you for listening. Uh, 
whether you're getting into this in the morning or at night. Have a blessed day and goodbye.